0: DarkCast Network. Indie pods with a dark
1: side. Hello, I'm Jackie Moranti, host of Cause of Death 100 Seconds to Midnight. And I'm your guide for this second part of the DarkCast Network's Cruel Summer. Did you know that in the summer months, statistically, crime rises? And while the paranormal doesn't seem to be affected by summer, There is proof that lunar cycles and the changing of seasons does increase activity. Keeping this in mind, sit back and try to relax as we present part two of our cruel summer tour.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Raven, and I'm the host of Rogue Darkness, the podcast that uncovers how the misinterpretations and misinformation Surrounding witchcraft, the occult, and other beliefs have led many to do unthinkable crimes. If you're interested in hearing about cases involving the true darkness of humanity, from ritualistic killings and the demons that live in all of us, to exploration of the macabre and delving deep into the unknown, I invite you to join me over on my show so we can explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. As part of the DarkCast Network, I'm honored to bring you an eerie campfire tale that is sure to send shivers down the spines of anyone whom you choose to tell it to this summer. This is the tale of the enigmatic Dear Lady, other times referred to as the Deer Woman, a well-known and often confrontational spirit within Native American mythology. Legend has it that the Dear Lady has different meanings to different people. According to the myth... To women, children, and men who are respectful of other women and children, the spirit is generally associated with fertility and love. On the other side of the coin, though, to those who have harmed women and children, she is vengeful and murderous, and is said to lure the harmful perpetrators to their untimely death. So that is where the tale begins. So grab a blanket or two and stay close to those you love because this chilling tale might just make you wish you weren't in the middle of the woods at a secluded campsite with only a fire and some dimly lit flashlights to give you comfort. Legend has it that a man and his friends were out camping one warm summer weekend. It was a boys' night out type of get-together, and the man was eager to spend some time with his friends, despite his wife being home with their newborn son. The man had been unfaithful to his wife for quite some time, as well as being condescending and even downright cruel to her, thinking he could ultimately get away with his actions. But little did the man know, something was watching him, knowing his dark secret, and tracking his movements from within the forest depths. The campfire began to burn out, withering to mere embers, so the man and his friends decided to call it a night. They each retreated to their tents, ready to sleep and excited for the next day's planned activities in the great outdoors. In the middle of the night, the man awoke, his bladder forcing him up. He crept quietly out of his tent, trying not to make much noise to prevent waking his friends. As he hid in the darkness, relieving himself, the man heard a distant rustling sound coming from deeper within the woods. The rustling quickly evolved into twigs snapping and then the sounds of hooves stampeding angrily through the otherwise silent forest. The man was startled and, without hesitation, ran as fast as he could back to his tent. But he wasn't fast enough. You see, the noises the man heard was the dear lady tracking him down to punish him for his mistreatment to his family. The man was knocked to the ground, and with a few heavy stomps, he was crushed to death. Under the Hooves of the Deer Lady. Ah! It's a truly terrifying tale told by many to warn of the dangers of harming women and children, especially those we are close to. Remember that although a story may seem unbelievable, and maybe even a mere legend, It's still a reminder of the harsh reality that every single one of our actions will be met with an equal, or in this story, an even more crude reaction. If you enjoyed this story, then be sure to check out my podcast, Rogue Darkness, wherever you listen to podcasts to get a heavy dose of true crime with an occultist twist. And with that said, until
0: next time. Hello, I'm Ashley from Fuck That. And today, I'm going to tell you a story about how amidst the heat of summer, darkness descended upon a small town. It is June 1989 in Stamford, New York, a small village nestled in the northern edge of the Catskills. Coined as the Queen of the Catskills, Stamford was a quaint, small village with just over a thousand residents. But, as idyllic as Stamford may have seemed, The summer of 1989 unleashed a darkness that forever stained its history. This seemingly ordinary village, where life was meant to be simple, was about to experience a tale of terror, forever etching its mark upon the collective memory of this tight-knit community. This is the story of the McDowell family murders. Robert Bob McDowell was born on February 15, 1930, and was a well-respected attorney in Schoharie County, New York. Bob was known by almost everyone within the community, and his presence commanded respect and admiration. Elizabeth Klepitar McDowell was born on December 21, 1940, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. She married Bob on December 14, 1964. Elizabeth was very involved in the community, and she belonged to a village improvement club carefully weaving herself into the fabric of their idyllic existence. Together, Bob and Elizabeth had two sons, Eben, known as Ben, born on June 22, 1966, and his younger brother Daniel, a promising student at Washington and Lee University. Daniel was set to begin his senior year in the fall of 1989, brimming with hope for a bright future. Dr. Charles Klepitar, Elizabeth's father was born on August 1st, 1910, in Paris, France. At 78 years old, he had long retired from the medical field, but he still had a very resounding presence within the community. While the McDowell family appeared close-knit, often gathering for dinners multiple times each week, and spending time together at Dr. Klepitar's hunting cabin, the family had secrets, and within these walls of togetherness, These secrets brewed, threatening to tear apart the very foundation they each built their lives upon. At the center of the family were Ben's parents his father, Bob, a respected local attorney who held the community in his sway, his influence extending far and wide, and his mother, Elizabeth, who danced through social circles gracefully in an attempt to conceal the shadows that stained their picture perfect household. However, As hard as Bob and Elizabeth tried to maintain the facade of a perfect family, they were slowly losing control. And in the summer of 1988, Ben's mental health began to decline drastically, and he began to get into trouble. One night, in Oneonta, New York, a neighboring town just 25 miles away from Stamford, a family was disrupted late in the evening after Ben had broken into their home. When confronted by the homeowner, Ben insisted that he knew someone who lived there. But that was untrue. Law enforcement was called, and Ben was arrested on minor charges related to unlawful entry. Interestingly, nothing was taken from the home during the incident. It was at this point that Ben's father, utilizing his legal connections, stepped in to ensure not only a quiet resolution, but to secure minimal consequences for his son. The following year, in January of 1989, an ordinary day at the hunting cabin took a sinister turn for the McDowell family, yet again. Dr. Klepitar, who was suffering from a pre-existing shoulder injury, was in the midst of splitting logs when his shoulder began to act up. Concerned for his father-in-law's well-being, Bob offered to take over the task. His son Ben, however, insisted that he needed to do it. Ben grabbed the axe from his father and began chopping wood, hyper-fixated on the task and completely unaware of the passing time. After more than enough time had passed, and after more than enough wood had been chopped, Ben's father Bob came to get him and to call him back to the family gathering. Ben, however, refused his father's requests, determined to continue to chop wood, even though there was more than enough at that point. Tensions began to escalate quickly between Ben and his father, and in a moment of unimaginable horror, Ben struck his own father in the face with the axe. Miraculously, his father survived, his voice filled with anguish as Ben pulled the axe up over his shoulder, ready to swing again. He screamed and pleaded for Ben to drop the axe. The family heard Bob's pleas and rushed to his aid. Struggling to make sense of the situation, Bob insisted that it was an accident, reassuring his family that Ben did not do it on purpose, yet again, shielding Ben from the full weight of the consequences. However, Ben was arrested and charged with reckless endangerment. But according to local law enforcement, his father, Ben, insisted that he did not want them to pursue charges, protecting Ben once again. As time went on, Ben's behavior grew increasingly irrational, raising even more concerns about his mental well-being. In a desperate attempt to find him help, Ben was committed to the Binghamton Psychiatric Center in 1989, located about an hour and a half away from the family's home. Isolated from his family and thrust into the care of psychiatric professionals, Ben's journey into the depths of his own mind had only just begun. While at Binghamton, Ben was diagnosed with schizophrenia, a complex mental disorder, and this diagnosis carried profound implications for Ben's future. Schizophrenia is characterized by psychotic symptoms and often is accompanied by a decline in social and occupational functioning, and this obviously presented formidable challenges for Ben. The road to recovery proved to be arduous, as many individuals who develop this disorder do not experience a complete restoration of their former selves. The impact of schizophrenia reverberates throughout every aspect of one's life, leaving lasting consequences. For those affected, including Ben, social isolation becomes a pervasive presence, as the symptoms of the disorder can create barriers in forming and maintaining relationships. The life-changing consequences of a schizophrenia diagnosis permeate every facet of one's existence, and this was Ben's new reality. His struggle to regain stability, manage symptoms, and navigate the world with a condition that alters perception would be lonely, and it would be a challenging path. After Ben was discharged, his eagerness to escape the confines of his home led him to seek solace at his grandfather's hunting cabin. but. Unbeknownst to anyone, this decision would have dire consequences, as it meant his medication intake would go unmonitored and he would cease taking his medication. Throughout Ben's life, he and his grandfather shared a close bond, making the cabin an appealing retreat. However, what Ben's family didn't know was that this retreat was planned. And just a few days prior, on June 16th, Ben purchased a shotgun from a local gun store. In order to purchase the shotgun, the required form asked if Ben had previously been treated for mental health issues. Ben answered, no. On June 21, 1989, after a long day of fishing with his grandfather, Dr. Klepitar went to take a nap. While he was asleep, Ben approached his grandfather with chilling intent. At close range, he fired the shotgun, killing his grandfather. But according to Ben's plan, he still had work to do. As evening approached and the dinner hour loomed, Ben called his mother, his voice laced with urgency and distress. Ben spoke to his mother, informing her that something was wrong with his grandfather, and that he couldn't wake him up. Ben pleaded with his mother, urging her to have his family come to the cabin to help him out with his grandfather, her father. Ben's mother quickly called her husband, relaying the unsettling information, recognizing the gravity of the situation. Elizabeth's instinct was to involve the authorities. However, Bob had a completely different perspective. As usual, he insisted on keeping this under wraps, concealing their family issues from public scrutiny. Reluctantly, they agreed to make the journey to the cabin together. With their younger son Daniel insistent on coming as well the following day shortly after nine fifteen a m on june twenty second authorities arrived at the hunting cabin after a social worker found a note written by Ben on the front door of his father's law office in Stamford. Upon arrival, authorities found Dr. Klepitar shot in his bed. He was seventy-eight Ben's father Bob, who was fifty-nine was found at the edge of a pond near the cabin alongside his son, Daniel, who was only 22. Ben's mother, Elizabeth, was found in the pond. According to sheriffs, she was trying to flee from her son. Elizabeth was 48. State and local police began searching frantically for Ben and cornered him around 11 a.m. near the pond, which was just under a half mile from the cabin. Authorities tried to talk Ben into surrendering in a six hour standoff. However, after Ben began shooting at authorities, he was shot and killed. Authorities on scene have since spoken out, expressing their wish that there was more that they could do, even though they believed they did all they could. One officer recounted that even though he tried to plead with Ben to surrender and expressed that they didn't want to hurt him, Ben kept reiterating that he wanted them to please shoot him. During the scorching summer of 1989, a chilling tale unfolded, leaving Stamford, New York forever changed. The McDowell family tragedy serves as a haunting reminder that the heat can bear witness to the darkest depths of human nature and the profound impact that untreated mental health disorders can have on everyone around. Even amidst the carefree laughter and fun of summer, the heat can become an unwilling accomplice to heinous crimes. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes and content from Fuck That, a true crime podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: My name is DJ, and I'm the host of the Mythical True Crime Podcast, where we uncover the true crimes of modern legends with our spoken narratives that blend history, crime, and and the supernatural. Today's story is one of the most infamous unsolved homicide cases in Finnish criminal history, and it went on to inspire the successful film franchise Friday the 13th. In the early morning hours on Saturday, June 4th, 1960, four Finnish teenagers decided to go camping along the shore of Lake Bodum. Mael and Anya were both 15 years of age at the time. Accompanying them were their boyfriends, Seppo and Niles, both aged 18. Now, sometime between 4 to 6 a.m. during the early morning hours that Sunday, June 5th, Mael, Anya, and Seppo were all stabbed and bludgeoned to death by an unknown assailant. Niles, the only survivor of the massacre, had fractured facial bones and stab wounds to his torso. He stated after several interviews that he had had a glimpse of the attacker, clothed in all black, with bright red eyes coming from them. At about 6 a.m., a group of boys watching some distance away had reported seeing a tent collapsed and a blond man walking away from the site. The bodies of the victims were discovered at around 11 a.m. by a carpenter, named Esko Johansson. He alerted the police, who arrived at the scene at noon that day. The killer had not injured the victims from inside the tent, investigators found, but instead had been attacking the occupants from the outside with a knife and an unidentified blunt instrument, possibly a rock, through the sides of the tent. The murder weapons were also never located. The killer had taken several items, which detectives found puzzling, including the keys to the victims' motorcycles which themselves had been left behind. Niles's shoes were partially hidden approximately 500 meters away from the murder site. The police did not corner off the site nor record the details of the scene, later seen as a major error, and almost immediately allowed a crowd of police officers and other people to trample around and disturb the evidence. The mistake was further exacerbated by calling in soldiers to assist with the search around the lake for the missing items, several of which were never found. Miel, who was Niles' girlfriend, was found undressed from the waist down and lying on top of the tent, and also had suffered most of the injuries out of all the other victims. She was stabbed multiple times after her death, whilst the other two teenagers were slain with less brutality. Niles was also found lying on top of the tent as well. There were two notable suspects in the course of the investigations of the Lake Boda murders, which are the following: Vladimir Galstrom, many local people suspected Karl Vladimir Galstrom, which is a kiosk keeper in the nearby city, known to have been hostile towards campers. Police found no hard evidence to link him to the actual murders. They were skeptical of sort of supposed confessions that he had said who have made them consider him to be just disturbed. He drowned in Lake Bodom in 1969, most likely due to suicide. The people in the town knew Gellstrom was violent, cut down tents, threw rocks at people who came to his street, and some have even said that it was Gellstrom they saw coming back from the murder scene, but were too afraid to call the police about him. The police never recovered DNA from Gellström. A book released in 2006 brings up the theory in detail. The book also claims that the police almost immediately ignored most much of the evidence that was previously unknown to the public because of the language barriers, among other things. Now, the other person was Hans Asman. Most public suspicion focused on Hans, who lived several kilometers away from the shore of Lake Bodum. A series of popular books propagated the theory that Hans committed the Bodem killings and also other murders. It was not taken seriously by police, as Hans had already an alibi for the night the Bodum murders occurred, and was said to have been in Germany during that time of another murder. On the morning of June 6, 1960, however, he had shown up at the hospital in the nearby city Helsinki with bloody clothes. After 40 years later, in late March 2004, Niles, not suspected in the case as far as the public knew, was arrested, and in early 2005, the Finnish National Bureau of Investigation declared the case solved based on new forensic evidence. According to the prosecution's interpretation of the bloodstains, Niles had been drunk and excluded from the tent when he attacked the other boy getting his jaw broken in a fight, which escalated into him committing the three murders. The trial started August 4, 2005, with Niles' defense lawyer arguing that the l- murders themselves were the work of one or more outsiders, and that Niles had been incapable of killing three people, given the extent of his injuries. It had been also known that his shoes worn, worn by the killer and hidden by him 500 yards away from the tent, belonged to Niles, who was also found barefoot on top. Modern DNA analysis was significant for this prosecution as it showed that the three murdered victims' blood was on Niles' shoes. Niles was completely absent. The prosecution said it followed from the lack of Niles' blood on the shoes that his injuries had occurred at a different time of the attack from the murdered victims, and that the only explanation was that Niles had committed the murders himself, then faked the theft of the items by hiding them, further injuring himself, and then went back to the tent where, at that time barefoot, pretended to be unconscious. The prosecution attempt to bolster their case by allegedly saying an identification by the two bird watchers that Niles. Was a tall blonde man at the scene of the crime, an assertion that had also been overheard making an incriminating remark, and also that a decade after the event, he had been boasted to another woman about his guilt. Now, on October 7, 2005, Niles was acquitted of all charges. The court explained the verdict due to the prosecution's evidence being inconclusive, also, failure to show Niles had a motive appropriate to the crime, of such extreme seriousness, and certainty about the facts now being impossible to be given about the time that had been elapsed. It ended with the state of Finland paying him 44,900 euros for mental suffering because of the long-remained time. But he was refused permission to sue Finnish newspapers for defamation. There were several films made about this case, including the most recent 2016 Finnish slasher film, Lake Bodum, which is based on the murder case. But more importantly, it inadvertently inspired the Friday the 13th film franchise that started back in 1980. I do hope you enjoyed tonight's show. If you enjoyed this story, I have many more on my podcast, Mythical True Crime. Available wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow me on every social media Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Mythical True Crime. Hello,
4: it's Alana, one half of the Canadian podcast Castles and Cryptids, and here is my story for the Cruel Summer Special. Robert Irving Bain married Margaret Arawah Cullen in New Zealand in 1969. They had four children, starting with son David in 1972, daughter Erewa in 1974, daughter Laniette in 1976, and son Stephen in 1980. They briefly lived in Papua New Guinea, where Robin worked as a missionary teacher before they moved back to New Zealand. On the 20th of June, 1994, the whole family, minus David, were found shot to death in their home. Robin, Margaret, Erewa, Laniatt, and Stephen were discovered in their Dunedin, New Zealand home, and David at the time was only 22, the only remaining son. At the time of their death, the parents Robin and Margaret were somewhat estranged. Robin either stayed in a caravan at the back of the property or at his place at the school where he worked. The house was also in absolute shambles with things piled everywhere and not cleaned. Robin had been struggling with depression, and his colleagues had begun to notice and remark on his decline prior to his death. Margaret had her issues also, and was not known to be shy about her problems with her marriage. Was often overheard to have called her husband a son of Belial, one of the four crown princes of hell. She was also known to say things like, I'd shoot him if I could. Their daughter, Laniette was living in an apartment, but also sometimes stayed with her father at his apartment at the school. She had also been summoned back to the Dunedin home for the family meeting. She came home on the 19th of June, and they were supposed to have the meeting the very next day. But by the next morning, when David returned home from his part-time paper route, he found his entire family dead. He then called the emergency line 111 at 7:09 a.m. He told the dispatcher they're all dead, they're all dead. A rifle was found lying next to Robin's body. Police also found a haunting message on the family computer that read, "Sorry, you were the only one who deserved to stay." There appeared to be a gap between David arriving home and calling the emergency line. And also, they saw he had some injuries on his arms. So four days later, David is charged with the deaths of his family members. But just two short weeks later, the house was burned down by remaining family members' request before the trial had even started. Unfortunately, the police investigator failed to retain the carpet that had the bloody footprints on it, the ones that would be used to help convict David Bain. As the prosecution and defense teams prepared for the trial, a possible motive for the murders came to light. A possible motive for the father, Robin, however. He had apparently been having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, Laniette. She had confided in a male friend who told police she was planning to confront her father and expose him. This was just before the family meeting was called. The witness that was supposed to be called to testify to the relationship between Robin and his daughter simply never showed up, however. Despite a lack of clear motive and based on the circumstantial evidence and bloody footprints, David was found guilty. In fact, the only real motive ever suggested that I found was a minor and long-running argument with his father about the use of a chainsaw. Other than, of course, the prosecution's rather weak argument that he wanted his inheritance. The family were not wealthy. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum 16-year non-parole period. Joe Karam, a former all-black rugby player in New Zealand, became interested in the case after he heard that people were selling jam to raise money to aid David in an appeal. He studied the trial and became convinced of David's innocence, He plunged his considerable wealth into his efforts to get David a retrial. He spent all his free time on the case, working on it full-time and losing an estimated $4 million in time, loss of earnings, and costs of legal and forensic experts. Prior to this, he had been a millionaire with over 20 properties. David was granted an appeal in 1995, but a retrial would not take place until 2009. Robin, David's father, remained a focus of the case as he was still the best and most likely suspect other than David. As his mental health was called into question, his depression was brought up and the incest incest story and his work suffering were all brought up by David's team. The trial lasted three months and it took the jury less than a day to find him not guilty. In March of 2010, Bain lodged an application for compensation for wrongful imprisonment, but it was complicated. His case fell outside cabinet rules on compensation, meaning the government was not obliged to pay him anything, but may do so if he was able to establish his innocence on the balance of probabilities and was also the victim of exceptional circumstances. A Canadian judge was brought in due to the high-profile nature of the case to review this application. Judge Minister Simon Power of New Zealand appointed retired Canadian Supreme Court Justice Ian Binney. Retired Canadian Supreme Court Justice Ian Binney. He sided with David. He concluded his review in September of 2012, finding that the Dunedin Police made a number of egregious errors that led directly to the wrongful conviction. After a lengthy battle amidst a scandal that was later dubbed dirty politics, finally David was offered $925,000 in payment if he would agree to drop all legal challenges. He agreed. The payment was deemed ex gratia, meaning it was made for moral rather than legal reasons, And had no bearing on Bain's innocence or guilt. As for David and where he is now, he married Liz Davies in a small ceremony outside Christchurch. The family is very private. And when a teledrama called Black Hearts came out in 2020 about the Bain family case, David said he was not going to be watching it. Indeed, his friend called it ghoulish. And that is the controversial case of the Bain family murders. We hope you enjoyed. Bye, Cryptic Cuties.
5: This is Kelsey from Castles and Cryptids. Today, I will be sharing the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. The case starts on the morning of June 13, 1977, at Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma. Located just two miles from town, Camp Scott had been operated by Girl Scouts since 1928 and was where they held their annual two week getaway every summer. The camp used platform tents, and camping in these platform tents was described as intimidating by many of the young campers. It was also said to be extremely dark at the camp due to the dense forest surrounding them. Just two months before the camp was set to open for the summer, there was on-site training happening with some of the counsellors. During this training, a camp counsellor discovered that her belongings had been ransacked and thrown around, and that a box of donuts that she had brought to the camp, the donuts had been stolen. Discovered inside the now-empty donut box was a handwritten warning from a steno pad. The first few pages simply read, KILL, over and over again. Then, written in all capital letters on the last page was, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. The camp counselor took the pages to the director of this training session, who simply believed that the note was probably just a prank by one of the other girls, and threw the note away. Sadly, less than two months later, this ominous warning would come true. At about 7 p.m. on Sunday, June 12, 1977, three young girls were sitting in their platform tent, number 7, during a severe thunderstorm. Lori Lee Farmer, 8, Doris Denise Milner, 10, and Michelle Heather Goose, 9. Their tent was part of the Camps Koiwa Unit which was located the farthest from the counselor's tent and was partially obscured by the camp showers. Other campers that night later described the storm and the darkness, saying, quote, It was the darkest dark I had ever known. I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or shut. But no one would have imagined what would be found come morning. At around 6 a.m. the next day, a girl walking to the showers saw something just off the path. It appeared to be the body of a young girl sticking out from the top of a sleeping bag. She alerted camp counsellors and the director, and soon all three bodies were discovered on the trail leading to that campsite's showers, about 150 yards or 140 metres from their tent. All three of them had been shoved into just one sleeping bag, with two shoved down to the bottom and the other one sticking out from the top. All three girls had been raped before being bludgeoned and eventually strangled to death. Investigators determined that their brutal attacks had actually happened inside of Tent number 7, and that later the bodies were moved to the shower area and stuffed inside that sleeping bag. A large red flashlight was also found on top of the girls' bodies. A fingerprint was able to be lifted from the lens but it was too smudged for any positive ID. A size 9.5 shoe print was found in blood inside of the tent. During the believe time of the murders, between 2.30 and 3 a.m. on June 13th, a nearby landowner reported hearing quite a bit of traffic on a remote road near the camp. And other Girl Scouts reported hearing strange sounds, moaning, and people moving around outside that night which was weird because of the severe thunderstorm. Camp Scott was promptly evacuated and eventually shut down. A huge manhunt was undertaken, looking for the suspect or suspects. And after 10 months on the run, police were able to get their man. The case was declared closed and solved when Jean Leroy Hart, a local jail escapee, was arrested. Hart had a history of violence and rape, including the kidnap and rape of two pregnant women just 10 years earlier. Now Hart maintained his innocence for the Girl Scout murders, but items found near the scene, hidden inside of a cave that he might have been staying at while on the run, linked him to some of the items found at the scene of the murders. However, DNA at the time was inconclusive, and all it could do was not rule him out while also ruling out some of the other suspects at the time. Hart was later acquitted in March of 1979 after a jury unanimously found him not guilty. However, since he was caught, he did end up continuing to serve the remaining over 300-year prior sentence he had. In June of 1979, two years after the murders, Hart collapsed and died of a heart attack at the age of 35 after jogging and lifting weights in the prison exercise yard. Two of the families of the victims later sued the Magic Empire Council and its insurer for $5 million. They were all alleging negligence. They discussed the threatening note that had been discarded, and then the large distance between the setup of tent number 7 and the counselors' tents. In 1985, the jurors sided with Magic Empire Council, and the families lost their suit. Richard Goose, the father of one of the victims, went on to help the state legislature pass the Oklahoma Victims' Bill of Rights. He also helped found the Oklahoma Crime Victims' Compensation Board. Another parent of one of the victims, Sherry Farmer, founded a support group called the Oklahoma Chapter of Parents of Murdered Children. In 2022, it was announced that DNA testing had been resubmitted multiple times, though it had always come back inconclusive. It is still believed that Hart was involved in the murders due to some of the markers in his blood and the samples matching those from the scene. Unfortunately, the samples are now far too degraded to get proper profiles and investigators are now just waiting for advancements in technology to help them be able to obtain that DNA profile. A four-part ABC News documentary series titled Keeper of the Ashes, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders, was released in 2022, close to the 45th anniversary of the murders. It was hosted by actress and singer Kristen Chenoweth, who revealed that she was just eight years old at the time of the murders, and she herself was a Girl Scout who had been planning on going on that camping trip that summer to Camp Scott, but she had become ill and decided not to go. According to investigators, the case of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders remains officially uns- Hello Spooklings, I'm Kathy.
6: And I'm Jason.
5: And we are All Hallows Eve Podcast.
6: We are bringing you the story of Richard Speck and the 1966 Chicago Massacre which introduced a new word into the American life, mass murderer. It is an unusually cool summer night for July 13, 1966, in South Deering, Chicago. Merlita Gargulio, age 23, who was known to have a beautiful singing voice. Valentina Passion, age 23, was known as a very good cook. Patricia Matusik, age 20, had nursed her dying cousin when she was younger. Pamela Wickening, age 20, had been a studious and focused student. And Nina Schmel, age 24, was remembered as Loving Elvis, Cats, and the Color Pink. And Corazon Amaro, age 23, were all at 2319 East 100th Street, a modest two-story townhouse, that now defunct South Chicago Community Hospital was using to house their student nurses. They shared the place with three other student nurses. Mary Ann Jordan, age 20. She was very close with her younger brother, who had Down syndrome. Suzanne Ferris, age 21, who had been planning her wedding to Mary Ann's older brother. And Gloria Jean Davey, age 22. She was the president of the Student Nurses Association, who all returned at later times later that night.
7: At around 11 p.m., armed with a hunting knife and a twenty-two caliber pistol, Richard Speck broke into the townhouse through a window. He had no idea who lived in the townhouse, nor did he care. His intentions were to rob the place. He made his way upstairs to the bedrooms. At the first room he encountered two of the girls. Pointing the gun at them in a low tone, he ordered them into the adjoining room where four of the other nurses were awakened. Using strips of torn bed sheets and nautical knots, Speck bound the wrists of his captives behind their backs. He assured them that he only intended to rob them. The other nurses told Corazon, maybe if we are calm and quiet, He will be too. He has been talking to us all, and he seems calm enough, and that's a good sign. He then removed the ladies one at a time from the room, each quietly leaving with him. He would be gone for approximately 30 to 45 minutes at a time. The ladies left behind in the room could hear muffled cries from deep within the house, but had no idea what was going on. During one of these periods of time, Corazon managed to roll under one of the bunk beds. Speck never noticed the missing nurse.
6: Corazon laid under the bed for hours, listening to her friend's muffled cries. She finally came out of hiding around 6 a.m., seven hours after this nightmare began, only to find her friends all dead, even the three ladies that hadn't originally been home. Suzanne, who had not been home at the time of the initial break-in, was stabbed to death in the upstairs hallway as she was walking to her room. She had wounds to her chest and chin. In the east bedroom were Patricia, Pamela, and Marianne. Patricia had been strangled with a strip of bedsheet. Pamela had been strangled and stabbed. Marianne had been stabbed in the chest, neck, and eye. The west bedroom Nina was found gagged with a bedsheet, strangled, and knife wounds to her neck. Valentina was strangled, and Marlita's throat had been slashed.
7: After finding seven of her friends murdered, Corazon climbed out onto the ledge of the second floor window and began to scream. They are all dead. My friends are all dead. Oh God, I'm the only one alive. Once help arrived, Gloria's body was discovered downstairs naked on the sofa. She had been dropped off by her boyfriend, and when she entered the house, had been raped, sexually brutalized, and strangled. Corazon was able to give a description to the police of a pock faced man and a tattoo that read, Born to raise hell. His likeness was splashed all over the front of every local newspaper. On July 19, 1966, Speck attempted suicide by slashing his wrist up to his elbow. At the last moment, he changed his mind and summoned for help. He was taken to Cook County Hospital, where an ER doctor recognized Speck's tattoo and notified the police. Richard Speck's trial began April 3, 1967, after a panel of psychiatrists judged him competent to stand trial. He claimed to have no recollection of the murders and showed no emotions during the trial. His fingerprints were found all over the crime scene, but the final nail in his coffin was during the trial when Corazon was asked if she could identify the killer. She rose from her seat in the witness box, walked directly in front of Speck, pointed at him and stated, This is the man.
6: On April 15, 1967, After 49 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Speck guilty and recommended the death penalty. On June 5th, Judge Herbert Passion sentenced Speck to death by electric chair. Speck never made it to the electric chair. The Supreme Court in 1971 upheld his conviction but reversed the death sentence. Instead, Speck was dispatched to the Stateville Correctional Center to serve a 400-year sentence. He died on December 5, 1991, of a heart attack. He was 49 years old.
7: If you would like to hear more about Richard Speck or other spooky topics, find us on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget...
6: Stay spooky, my friends. A
8: Teenage Girl Leads a Troubled Life She lives in a dangerous neighborhood. She's been rebelling. She's been having family problems. Then she disappears. So what caused it? Did she run away voluntarily to escape her problems? Did she fall victim to a criminal roaming her streets? Or are family members not telling the whole story about the last day she was seen? These are the questions that have been swirling around the disappearance of Ashley Summers, a 14-year-old girl from Cleveland, Ohio, who was last seen in July of 2007. What appeared at first to be a relatively straightforward runaway case has morphed over the years into a rat's nest of terrifying possibilities. Ashley Nicole Summers was born on June 16th, 1993 in Cleveland, Ohio. She was the oldest of six children born to Jennifer Summers. Ashley's father took off after she was born, but Jennifer met somebody new and gave birth to Ashley's five half-siblings. Jennifer herself came from a big family and they all lived nearby in Cleveland. The family was made up of 10 aunts and uncles, cousins, great aunts and great uncles and grandparents. Though she had this close-knit family, as Ashley approached her 14th birthday, boys also started entering the picture and things started to change. Right before Ashley turned 14, she met an older boy in her neighborhood named Jean. Jean was 16. And, you know, two years isn't really that big of an age difference. But at the time, Ashley was in middle school and Jean was already in high school. So her mom was not a fan of this relationship. But as these things tend to go, the more Jennifer disapproved of her daughter's boyfriend, the more Ashley was drawn to him. And this led to other acts of rebellion. Jennifer suspected that Ashley had been taking money out of her purse here and there. But one day, Ashley took Jennifer's entire paycheck out of a drawer. Soon, Jennifer found out why Ashley had done that. One day, her oldest daughter came home with a giant tattoo of a heart on her arm that said Jean in the middle. Jennifer, of course, hit the roof and really was at the end of her rope with Ashley. But luckily, like I said, she had this large family around her to offer support. So Jennifer went to her own mother who, you know, had a little experience in dealing with rebellious teenagers. And she asked her what to do. Jennifer's mother agreed that since it was summertime and Ashley was out of school, that she should move in with her for a while. Jennifer hoped that the change of scenery would help. And, you know, Jennifer's mother also lived on the other side of town away from Jean. So at first, after this move, things do seem to get a little bit better. But as you may imagine, living with her grandmother did prove to be a little boring for the 14 year old. But luckily for Ashley, a ton of family lived nearby, so she just kind of started bouncing around. Her great-uncle Kevin's house apparently was a big hangout for the cousins because he spoiled them and let them do whatever they wanted. Ashley's Aunt Danielle had also just moved into a place in the Cleveland suburbs, and Ashley talked about moving in with her. Which again, you know, getting out of the city, maybe into a better area, I think was something that everybody thought would be good for Ashley at that point. July 4th, 2007, was Ashley's great-uncle Keith's birthday. He had a pool party at his house like he did every year. Ashley came, but Jennifer and her other kids didn't for some reason. However, there were plenty of other family members there. Apparently, though, according to them, Ashley seemed a little depressed when she got there, but eventually got in the pool and started playing with her cousins and seemed to cheer up. She stayed there for around three or four hours and then told them she was going to go to her aunt Christina's house who at the time lived just a few blocks away. She left Keith's house around 6 p.m. and seemingly disappeared. The problem was because Ashley bounced around between her family's houses so much, it took a while before anyone actually realized she was missing. Luckily, Ashley's mother, Jennifer, said that she talked to her daughter either every day or every other day. So when a few days went by without being able to get in touch with her, She knew something was wrong, and Ashley's family did report her missing. Now, due to Ashley's recent rebellion and the fact that she had already been bouncing around between houses, police classified Ashley as a runaway. And honestly, her family pretty much agreed with them. But that doesn't mean that they just wrote her off. They banded together and searched the area, hoping to bring her home. While they didn't turn up any sign of Ashley, neither did Police. Although that could be because it didn't seem as though police were putting much effort into the case at all. Basically, what it came down to is what we hear so often. Ashley came from a bad part of town. And even though she was only 14, they seemed to shrug her shoulders and just accept that she ran away. According to an article published in the Lakewood Observer in 2009, nearly two years after Ashley's disappearance, the local media wasn't very interested either. Quote, the local media put out the family's press release, but hasn't bothered to speak with the family, nor have any of the outlets broadcasted any follow-up stories, end quote. So getting back to the idea that Ashley decided to just run away after this pool party, one of the issues is that she lost her phone that day. On the morning of July 4th, 2007, Ashley was at her other great uncle, Kevin Donathan's house. Donathan and Ashley got into an argument allegedly over Ashley texting, quote, family gossip. The argument got so heated that Jonathan grabbed Ashley's phone and broke it. And again, this is 2007, and those things were pretty heavy duty. So breaking a phone was not an easy task like it is today. So when Ashley showed up to that pool party later in the day and was seemingly down in the dumps, as her family members put it, that could be a big reason why. So you can look at this incident in one of two ways maybe Ashley was just fed up with her family and upset about the fight and did just decide to take off. Or you can look at the fact that she didn't have a phone as a reason she wouldn't have left right then, as she was 14 with very few resources and now no method of communicating with friends or anyone else who may help her get what she needed to run away. As time went on and Ashley didn't show back up, her family held out hope that she was still out there and safe and just really taking the rebellious teen thing to the next level. And a month after her disappearance, Ashley's mother received evidence that seemed to support this. Jennifer Summers received a phone call. The voice on the other end of the line was rushed, but she did believe that it was Ashley. The person on the end of the line said, quote, it's me, mom. I'm okay end quote. And that was it. The call was never traced. And though Jennifer does believe it was her daughter, no one has been able to definitively prove that. But at this point, it does appear that Ashley, you know, did take off. But interestingly, her boyfriend, Gene, the one that she was so in love with, says that he never heard from her after July fourth, two 2007. And his story hasn't changed since then. So if she did take off voluntarily, she did. Didn't contact her boyfriend. Now, for the next two years, Ashley's case languished. Investigators and media weren't really interested, but her family didn't give up hope. They were just stuck waking up every day looking for answers that never came. But in March of 2009, that changed with Twitter. Now, that year, Twitter was still pretty new, and only a handful of celebrities had a presence on the social media platform. One of the biggest, if not the biggest at the time, was Ashton Kutcher. He was an early adopter and had a huge following. On March 7th, 2009, he sent out a simple tweet, quote, Can you please, RT? Missing 15-year-old girl, Cleveland area, end quote. And he had a link. With that, all of a sudden, Ashley's case went national. Now, since people are paying attention, some important questions started being asked and connections were made. And as it turns out, Ashley wasn't the only young girl to go missing from that Cleveland neighborhood. On April 23rd, 2003, 16-year-old Amanda Berry finished her shift at Burger King and started the short walk home, but she never made it. The next year, on April 2nd, 2004, 14-year-old Gina De Jesus was walking home from school with a friend. They parted ways and Gina never made it home. In 2009, after people started taking notice of Ashley's case, some started to wonder if the three missing girls who all vanished within blocks of each other were connected. According to an article on the Anderson Cooper 360 blog, the FBI was looking into the three cases as possible abductions, potentially by the same person. While there were now people looking into Ashley's case, there were no answers, nor were there answers in Amanda or Gina's cases. That is until a shocking 911 call. On May 6, 2013, a terrified woman called and said, quote, I'm Amanda Berry. I've been kidnapped. I've been missing for 10 years, and I'm here. I'm free now. End quote. Amanda Berry was alive. So was Gina de Jesus. They had been held captive for the last decade by Ariel Castro in his Cleveland basement. When they were rescued, there was a third woman with them, but it wasn't Ashley. Michelle Knight had been kidnapped by Castro from a family dollar store in 2002. The three women had been beaten and repeatedly raped, and when they were freed, Barry escaped with her six-year-old daughter, to whom she had given birth in captivity. When the three women were rescued, no one really knew what was going on or how many women were down there. The entire city, along with Ashley's family, held their breath and prayed for a miracle. But the miracle didn't come for Ashley. Castro later told investigators that the three kidnappings were unplanned crimes of opportunity. Despite the small geographical area and the similarity in the disappearances, Castro was never tied to Ashley's disappearance. He died by suicide in prison in 2013. So at this point, no one knew what to think. Ashley hadn't been heard from in six years, and there were really no clues in her disappearance. Though her case seemingly wasn't related to Castro's victims, the FBI did still believe that Ashley met with foul play simply due to the length of time that she had been gone without making contact. Then in 2015, Ashley's family thought they might have an answer. So since her disappearance, Ashley's step-grandmother spent a lot of time on the Internet getting Ashley's story out there and searching for any clues. In January of 2015, Linda was on the internet and came across a photo of a woman who looked eerily like Ashley. The photo that Linda saw was from an ATM in Warwick, Rhode Island. In the photo was a woman and a male accomplice who were being accused of identity theft, fraud, and other related crimes. Linda and the rest of Ashley's family thought it looked so much like her that they contacted Warwick police who agreed. Warwick PD publicized the case in hopes of identifying the mystery woman, but received no leads. The FBI got involved and launched a search for the woman that lasted several months. In July of that year, the FBI did come out and say that the woman in the ATM photo was not Ashley. In an effort to find the mystery woman, billboards had been erected around Warwick with her photo, And apparently the woman's parents contacted the FBI to let them know that it was their daughter and she was known to commit petty crimes. Three years later, in November of 2018, Cleveland police and the FBI announced that they had new information in Ashley's case that put her last known whereabouts into question. Not only that, the day and time at which she was last seen was also up in the air. Police said that they believed there were two additional areas of interest where she was last seen. It was at this point that they believed Ashley had been seen on July 9th near the intersection of West 96th Street and Madison Avenue. This information also led to a new search. Remember Ashley's great uncle, Kevin Donathan, the one who broke Ashley's phone after an argument? One of the areas of interest was the house he lived in back in 2007. Now, he no longer lived there, but the current residents cooperated with law enforcement and let them dig in the backyard. Unfortunately, they didn't find anything related to Ashley's disappearance, but a month later, something interesting did happen. In December of 2018, Kevin Donathan was arrested and charged with multiple crimes, including rape, attempted rape, and gross sexual imposition. Police didn't name him as a suspect in Ashley's disappearance at that time, but a relative told WKYC News that the family had recently been re-interviewed about Ashley and Donathan's name came up. On February 25th, 2020, Donathan was sentenced to 35 years in prison. After Donathan's sentencing, Ashley's case went cold once again. But in 2021, the FBI received new information regarding when Ashley was last seen. Now, instead of the July 9th date, they believe that Ashley was actually last seen on July 8th in the area of West 44th Street and Trowbridge. A new search was also performed on a parcel of land on Train Avenue. Investigators dug and recovered what turned out to be animal bones, but no sign of Ashley. The FBI continues to look for new information in this case and released four locations that Ashley had been known to frequent prior to her disappearance. The 2100 block of West 96th, the 3800 block of West 23rd, the 1100 block of Holmden Avenue, and the 3400 block of West 44th. As the stairs, it has been 16 years since Ashley Summers has been seen. Her family is still actively searching for answers, and authorities still firmly believe that there are people who have information about Ashley's disappearance who have yet to come forward. Ashley Nicole Summers has been missing since July 8th, 2007. She was 14 at the time. She would be 30 years old today. Anyone who has had an interaction with Ashley or has possible knowledge of what may have happened to her is asked to contact the Cleveland FBI at 216 522-1400. 522 You can also make a tip at Crimestoppers at 25crime.com. There is a reward for information in her disappearance. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more stories of unsolved missing persons cases, make sure you tune into And Then They Were Gone, hosted by Kona Gallagher and Ethan Flick. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of these cruel summer stories.
1: We all hope that you enjoyed this two-parter of cruel summertime stories, researched and recorded just for you by the dark-minded folks at the Darkcast Network. Be sure to check out all the fantastic shows at Darkcast Network by going to www.darkcastnetwork.com. Then please subscribe, rate, and favorably review our shows. Thanks so much for joining us. Be careful out there. Life is...